up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Wise Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Danielle Harlan, the author of The New Alpha, Join the Rising Movement of Influencers and Changemakers Who Are Redefining Leadership. Growing up in a small oceanside town in California, Danielle's perspective was slowly shaped by the conglomerate of open-minded, thoughtful people surrounding her, inciting her to question how she can go above and beyond individual success to truly benefit her community. Before pursuing a master's and PhD, Danielle worked for Teach for America and taught special education in a fairly under-resourced area of San Jose. She feels like she derived purpose and also gave back to her community through this area of strenuous, though incredibly rewarding work. Danielle says leadership and human potential have been woven into everything she's done, right down to her doctorate-level dissertation for a Stanford PhD in political science. After earning several degrees as the first person in her family to graduate college, Danielle wrote and published her book, as well as founded the Center for Advancing Leadership and Human Potential. Danielle's work as both an author and CEO focuses on what our responsibilities as human beings are to one another and how we can maximize our impact on others and the world through leadership. Ladies and gentlemen, Danielle Harlan. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast. A very happy new year to everybody out there and joining me for our inaugural 2017 recording is Danielle Harlan. Danielle, welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast. Thanks so much for being with me. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. And it, uh, I think we, we uh, at least I need to share, uh, you and I had been going back and forth for a series of uh, weeks, maybe even months in getting uh, schedules right. coordinated, uh, mostly my fault. And so thanks for bearing with me and uh, and, uh, and and making time to chat. This will be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I'm glad we could finally make it happen. So, uh, you know, obviously, I want to dive into The New Alpha, which is the book that you wrote. The subtitle of the book is Join the Rising Movement of Influencers and Changemakers Who Are Redefining Leadership. And I, I want to jump into that without question and really cover that in some great detail. But before we do, I'd really love to get a sense and give a sense to our audience of who you are as an individual. In addition to this great work you and your team and researchers are working on, maybe you could just uh, rewind the clock a little bit and just give us a little sense of, uh, of the younger Danielle, not that you're old, uh, just some, you know, some <laughs> of your childhood where you grew up and just some of the memories from childhood. I'd love to start there and, uh, and see where that takes us. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm here actually in the Bay Area in California, the San Francisco Bay Area right now as we talk. But I grew up down the coast in a, a little coastal town called Big Sur. And I think it's, it's interesting because at the time I just thought, oh, you know, it's a beautiful place to grow up by the ocean, redwoods, all that. But um, Big Sur is actually sort of known as the, the seed of the human potential movement, right? Lots going on there in the 60s and 70s, which is honestly a little bit before my time. But growing up in that community, I think of people who are open-minded and thoughtful and really thought 
not just, you know, what can I do as an individual to be successful, but what are my roles and responsibilities to my community? I don't think I realized it at the time, but it certainly, you know, shaped my perspectives as an adult in a deep way. So grew up there, uh, then went on to the University of Maryland College uh, on the East Coast. And, and this was actually, I became the first person in my family to graduate from college. And just an amazing experience. I think anyone who's had the opportunity to attend college can sort of uh, attest to this, but it was a point in my life where I realized, wow, what an incredible amount of privilege, right? To have this education, to be surrounded by so many amazing people and, and great organizations. And that also really got me thinking about, you know, what are my responsibilities now that I have this privilege to others? And so it was through University of Maryland that I found out about Teach for America became a special education teacher uh, afterwards with Teach for America, then went on to grad school because I really wanted to sort of better understand the issues. So did my doctorate and master's degree uh, at Stanford, studied political science. And it's interesting, I mean, sort of all of this seems so random at the time, right? I was just following gut instincts, but I think leadership and human potential were woven into everything that I did, even down to what my dissertation was on in political science. I looked at leadership on the Supreme Court, um, group decision-making behavior, right? All of these things that at the time just seemed interesting and cool, but later that research and being familiar with that came into play in, in such deep ways. And the leadership roles that I took on as a professional and then also in, in writing the New Alpha book and founding the Center for Advancing Leadership and Human Potential. So it was one of those, I think my background is one of the situations where it, it seems sort of ill logical and all over the place as it's coming together. But of course, when you look back, you know, it all makes sense. It was all based so much on what are our responsibilities as human beings to others and how, how can leadership really help us to maximize our impact in the world and solve the problems that we, that we care most about. I'm curious, at what point did the Teach for America component and that pursuit come into play? Like, how did you know, was there a defining moment when it was, whether it was where you grew up in Big Sur or when you went to Maryland, that education and teaching and with this emphasis on students with special needs was going to be uh, at least a stop along your journey? When did you know? Yeah, it's such a great question. It's funny, I remember sitting in the car with my mom in the early 90s, right, when Teach for America was very new. And she's like, hey, I heard about this program, you know, for teachers. And, and honestly, I didn't even think about that conversation until so many years later when I was in college and, you know, there were Teach for America recruiters on campus. And I thought, well, this is really cool. I think for me, the reason I connected with the ideas behind that organization and the reason I still do is because, again, being the first in my family to graduate from college, I just saw how that experience gave me access to resources and jobs and a network and connections that, you know, many people I knew who didn't have that opportunity or weren't able to attend college, like, didn't have. I was like, wow, this is so weird. It's such, in, in some ways, it's like an unearned privilege, right? Like, I mean, there's other many, many smart people who just simply, you know, didn't have that, the opportunities that I did, probably much more, you know, intelligent and competent than, than I was. And I thought, just because I have this college degree, my world is forever different, right? Like I have, I have so much more access. And so I felt like I wanted to really pay it forward. I think a lot was given to me through great like mentors and teachers and professors. And I think for me, being able to give back in that way was, gave me a sense of purpose and still does. 
And so uh, let's expand on that just for a moment, because to give back uh, clearly is a theme that uh, just guides your life uh, in all of the research that I've done. Uh, that's been a part of who you are for as much as I've been able to dig up. And believe me, there's been no shortage of trying to dig up some provocative stuff, but there's not much there. Um, the emphasis mm -hmm. on uh, so, so as I found, one of your first uh, teaching gigs was at a relatively um, under-resourced uh, part of San Jose. I think it was East San Jose, if I'm not mistaken. And mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it, was, it was kindergarten, and it was uh, kindergarten students with special needs. Like, so, so why special needs? Why in an under-resourced part of San Jose? Uh, was it the challenge of it? Was there something in particular about what drew you to that environment? Oh, this is a great question. Uh, you know, it's interesting. People always are like, oh, special ed. And I remember when I was a special ed teacher full time, people would be like, oh, you must be a saint. I will tell you honestly, when I joined Teach for America, I didn't actually think I'd be teaching special ed. I had a really naive view of what special education was, right? I just assumed it was people with like the most like challenging and, um, you know, intense difficulties, but actually technically there's a lot of um, categories of learning differences that fall into special ed. So when I got to East San Jose, they asked me, they said, hey, we assigned you to be, I think it was English and social studies middle school, right? Like every, every teacher's dream. <laughs> so much fun to teach English and social studies. But they said, we actually have this really high need in special education. Would you consider doing that? And so I thought, I was like, well, I'm not sure if I'm qualified, right? My background wasn't in education. That's not what I majored in in college. And so the school district and Teach for America were like, that's okay. We can train you. We can give you, you know, the skills and competencies that you need to be successful if you're willing to do it. And I thought about it. And, you know, Teach for America itself is a two-year commitment. And I knew that I wasn't going to be a full-time classroom teacher. I didn't know, actually, that teaching would end up becoming like a deep and integral part of, of who I am as a human being and who I am as a leader. But I knew that I wasn't going to build a career as a classroom teacher. And I thought, well, I have a limited amount of time in this experience. I really want to throw myself in in a way that I feel like is going to make the biggest impact. And it, and it turned out um, that I think special education was a great choice and it was a great way to make that impact. But also personally, I think I got so much more out of that experience than I might have if I'd chosen a different route or something less challenging just because working with uh, students with learning differences really, um, it challenged me to find ways to help people reach their potential um, it, it, that didn't follow necessarily the conventional path, right, of how we know students learn, but all of them were so brilliant and, and eager, right, to learn and improve that it was just a deeply fulfilling experience. And I feel like when I look back on my career, all the different things I've done and the impact I've had in different domains, certainly being a special ed teacher was one of the most meaningful and impactful, if not the most meaningful and impactful sort of um, aspects of my career that I can think of. You know, I think a lot has been made and is still being made about our public school system in the U.S. and in particular, some of the curriculum and the common core and some states are following, some states are not. I'm curious, okay. as, you're, as you were at least at the time focused uh, in, in the Bay Area, focusing on students uh, who had special education needs and having to work within a curriculum that may or may not have been the ideal curriculum for these kindergartners, did you run into any scenarios where you were you were just met with challenges with the curriculum? And if so, you know, what were some of the ways that you were able to 
you know, get out of a homogenizing everybody into the same, you know, sort of uh, space and to meet them where they're at and give them what they need as an individual. Oh, yeah. So I will say I didn't actually work under Common Core when I was a teacher. It was right before that got implemented. I, I think it's interesting, though, when we think about these standardized curriculums, right, because there's good reasoning behind them. We think, OK, if we know these are the things that students must know to be successful, it makes, it makes sense to say, hey, every state or school district, you need to be teaching these things. I think the problem comes in when we really make them overly formulaic or, or um, create so much rigidity around them that there's no flexibility or no room to adjust where things actually need to be adjusted. But that's, I mean, that takes a lot of expertise to know, right, when you should adjust and when you shouldn't in a way that's actually going to push student learning forward and not hinder it. I was lucky. We did have scripted curriculums in the school district that I taught in for math, writing, and reading. But I had an amazingly, um, I think flexible and supportive school district in terms of their special ed staff that worked at the district and my principal to this day is one of the best leaders I've ever worked with. And so they really, I think, pushed me to think about what adaptations can I make for students in my class who had special needs while still really pushing them to master the content that they, they ultimately needed to master to be successful. And I think in some ways that was one of the benefits of being a special education teacher. There was a little bit more flexibility. Like I could always say, oh, I'm adapting this because you know so-and-so needs this because this is how they learn best. Whereas I think if I'd been teaching in a more traditional classroom, that might've been more difficult to do. Um, but I also learned from that process and I think maybe you or, or people who are listening to this podcast have had that experience. I think in the beginning, Brian, I kind of waited and thought like, oh, they'll tell me, you know, how to do this <laughs> or where I should deviate, right? Like you want someone, especially when you're young and new in your career, and, and I'll be honest, I'm a little bit older now, and I still have those moments where I'm like, wait, why am I waiting for someone to tell me how to do this? And so I think through that experience, I just really learned to be proactive, to think about, okay, you know, what changes need to be made? And and how how can I do this? Even if there were aspects of that that, you know, I couldn't change, right? Like I couldn't completely throw out the curriculum or I couldn't say, hey, school district, this doesn't work. You need to get a new one. But I could think about what changes can I make in my classroom or how can I teach this math lesson in a different way that's going to resonate more with my students. I appreciate you, uh, you know, indulging in that uh, a, a little bit. And I'm, I'm curious from those experiences, is that what led you to the Carnegie Foundation and taking the the experience with Teach for America and what you were doing into sort of this bigger platform to be able to you know uh, move the needle in a much bigger way uh, on a on a much larger scale. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. So I'd had this experience with Teach for America. I will say, Teach for America also their. Um, the way they train teachers is very much based on a leadership model, right? The classroom teacher is the leader. You set a vision and goals with your students. You get them and, and their family members and the community invested. And then you figure out, all right, how can I influence and motivate each of these individuals in my classroom and the people who are supporting them, you know, to reach these goals. So when I look back, I think just that experience of going through Teach for America was really important to my own leadership development. Then I went to grad school, sort of studied it from the more academic perspective, like I said, my doctorate is in political science, but my master's was in education. So I still had this sort of angle around public education and how we can do better there. And then as I was coming to the end of my doctoral program, they're long, right? So you have like five or more years to really think about, ah, what do I wanna do next? 
And so I was coming to the end of that program and I thought, okay, now I have, I have this leadership experience and training. I, I know how to teach. I also have this research experience. Like what makes sense next? And it just so happened that the Carnegie Foundation, which is a national nonprofit, and they're actually, they're not part of Stanford, but they're on Stanford's campus and they're based there, was looking for a role that required all of that. It was such an odd role. And, and I've actually talked to them since. They're like, we never thought we'd find someone, right, who had like the research experience and the teaching and the leadership, but it ended up being a perfect fit for the skill set that I had at the time. And they were working on really important issues around public education, but in particular, how can we use what we know about networks and quality improvement to really improve public education? And I just thought it was the most cool and innovative work that I'd seen and, and probably still have seen in public education. So I was like, sign me up. Um, and, and my first role there was called associate to the president. And I was really sort of like the, the right hand person to the president doing a lot of the management functions and helping him. He was a new president who was just coming in, really set up the organization and systems in a way that was going to allow us to work towards our vision in the most efficient way possible. And then later, after about a year of working there, I was promoted to chief of operations. So then I ran the largest team in the organization that was sort of responsible for the day-to-day -day operations and all the sort of bread and butter of keeping the organization running, which was just, it was a tremendous leadership experience for me at such a young age. I was certainly the youngest person on their senior leadership team, um, but also really allowed me to impact the issues that I cared most about. And I was exposed to incredible leaders within the organization and within all of the partner organizations that we worked with. And so at what point during that experience did, uh, and this is my assumption, this, this pull or tug in this uh, continued social scientist uh, capacity that you have, you know, what led you to, to, to break away from work that was clearly having a big impact, not only for you, but for the, for the people that the Carnegie Foundation's work was serving, um, to break away from that? Uh, and continue this pursuit of social science and really understanding and going deep into leadership. Uh, how did that happen? Why did it happen? Um, I'd love to hear the events around that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So I am by training a social scientist. I will say I don't consider myself that. I mean, I certainly bring a social science perspective, but I feel like I'm much more of a doer, right? Like, I, I can do the research. Um, I can certainly do all the, the analysis. But I think my actual role and purpose in life is to be someone who can really understand that world and then bridge it with, okay, how do we use what we know from science and social science to actually improve the world? So I, I do love social science and I find myself deep in it on a daily, daily basis, but my interest is less in myself personally conducting a bunch of studies and more in thinking about, okay, what do we know about this topic and, and how can we translate that into like actionable steps that we can take to really create improvements? So I think my role at Carnegie was perfect for thinking about that. Like I definitely worked with a lot of academics, but also was very much on, you know, the applied side of things like, okay, how does this affect our strategy here? Um, and I think in many ways, it was some of the most purposeful and fun work that I've ever done with incredibly talented people. Same is also true of Teach for America. But I, I got to a point at Carnegie where I'd uh, been chief of operations for a few years and worked on a lot of projects that I'd wanted to work on. And I think I could have easily stayed there probably forever and, and felt like, you know, pretty fulfilled. Um, but I, I started to think about, you know, at the end of the day or at the end of life, when I'm sort of looking back, 
what do I want to, you know, have been able to say, hey, I accomplished. And I thought I could broaden my impact by perhaps like stepping outside of the organization and taking some of the lessons I learned from working there and also from, you know, understanding the social science research and being a teacher and thinking about how can I help other people just beyond this organization to really learn from the people I've learned from and the research that I've learned from and the lessons. And it got to the point, I'll be honest, where an extraordinary amount of my time was being taken up by people, not just in, in Carnegie, but all over, sort of reaching out and saying, well, you know, how do you do this? Or I've heard emotional intelligence is important. Like, what does that look like? How can I do it? And I thought, you know, I should just write this stuff down. Right? <laughs> I've having the same conversations over and over. Right? Like, I was just like, oh, there, there's a certain efficiency to it, where I was like, I think I just need to write this down. And so I thought this for a while. And then finally, I was sitting on a train with a friend of mine on my way to a conference. And she was like, I feel like you've been exposed to a lot of amazing leaders. Like, you understand both, like, sort of the applied side of leadership and then, like, the research side. And you also have done it and you've taught it. She's like, you really need to write it down. She's like, I think you need to do a book. And it was funny. <laughs> I mean, it took me, it didn't, it didn't happen immediately, but that conversation lingered in my mind for a long time. And finally, I thought, you know, I think I can really expand my, even though I love what I'm doing, I think I can expand my impact by putting this out more broadly. And then as I started writing the book, I, it just luckily I had an amazing network of great, high quality people who understood the work that I was doing and really valued it. And they kind of connected me to consulting opportunities and teaching opportunities. And eventually I realized, wow, this I think it's more than a book. I think it's an organization. And that's how the Center for Advancing Leadership and Human Potential, which I now lead, um, came into being. It, it started with the book first, and then there was so much traction that we ended up getting together and really making it into not just the book, but also an organization that other people could be a part of. That's, that's uh, is an amazing uh, quick overview of what I'm sure was uh, a much longer journey. Let's <laughs> Right. It always sounds so easy. Right. Yeah. Boom, boom. Step one, step two, step three. You know, yeah. Lather, rinse, repeat. Um, exactly. So let's, let, let, let's, let's talk about data just for a moment. So sure. you're as familiar with Gallup uh, as I am, if not more. I know. I saw some of your great Gallup data on your website. I loved it. Yeah. So Gallup's been great at research, right? An amazing research organization, and in particular, the Q12 yep. survey that they've been doing for many, many years. Yep. And I've leveraged a lot of their data as it relates to engagement. And mm -hmm. what, I, what I find so fascinating is if you were to look at the Q12 survey results from the year 2000 through 2015, so a good 15, 16 years mm -hmm. of data, the actively disengaged, the uh, not engaged, and the engaged, the three different classifications, have mm -hmm. been barely uh, changed. They barely change. I mean, it's a percentage point here mm -hmm. and there. And as I've shared, we've been through some amazing uh, economic cycles over that time period. I mean, we've had an explosion in technology. We've had recessions. Mm -hmm. We've had war. There's just been so much. And yet these particular engagement numbers rarely, if ever, change year after year, which to mm -hmm. me has always- it's amazing. Been, yeah. It begs the question, 
what the hell are we not looking at that we could begin Mm -hmm. to move the needle on this, not for the sake of getting better scores, but for the reasons and the ripple effects that if you can move the needle and get instead of three out of 10 employees really connected to the work and you can move it to four Mm -hmm. and soon to five and maybe to six, Okay, you're talking increased productivity, increased problems being mm-hmm. solved, and a host of other positive uh, ripple effects. Yeah. So my question to you is, what, what are we not looking at? What the hell are we all missing that nobody's been able to figure this out? Yeah, I mean, so I love the, the Gallup data. I think they do a really great job of asking good questions and also trying to to connect some of the problems that we're seeing, for example, around employee engagement with causal factors, right? Like, what is creating these low numbers? And and we know the number one answer that uh, that affects how engaged people are, like how you know connected they are with their work, how productive they are at it, is leadership. And that's what, one of the deep reasons that I'm so interested in leadership in general is because more than just being sort of fun or interesting or cool, we know that good leadership actually correlates with better organizational outcomes. So, like you said, if you have really highly effective leaders who, you know, people also can connect with in a meaningful way and and who help people find purpose and meaning in their work. Their engagement goes up, their um, turnover goes down, absenteeism goes down, you know, culture is improved and, and bottom line goals actually turn out better that way too. So for me, the answer is, is almost always the causal factor is leadership. And we simply need to learn how to do leadership better and think about what that looks like. But also I think we need to think deeply on how we train and develop leaders. And I think some of the conventional approaches that we've been taking just aren't working. And that's sort of, you know, what I hit on in the new alpha book and what that's all about. Like, what do we know that works? And what doesn't work and what else should we be thinking about? So let's approach this from, uh, all right, what doesn't seem to be working? So let's focus at least just for a moment on um, what I believe you refer to as the traditional alpha. So if you were to describe the traditional alpha-based leader, the the get shit done kind of leader, and maybe that is the description, but how what did you see in your research and in all the experiences? And by the way, your experiences are, are not just domestic. You traveled abroad, you taught abroad, you've spent time in several different countries. So you bring a very worldly perspective and I didn't mean to skim over that stuff. Um, But this (laughs) traditional alpha in your estimation is best described as what? Yeah, so I think when we think about the word alpha, it's all about power and influence, right? But when many of us think that word, we sort of like shudder or cringe, like, oh, alphas. You know, they're not people we necessarily like to work with. And for sure, they're, like you said, the get shit done people. And I think that's actually important. <laughs> like, as much as it might be hard to work with, with difficult leaders, certainly we want leaders who can accomplish goals. I think that's like a fundamental baseline requirement for effective leadership. I think the difference between the traditional alphas and then the new alphas who I really focus on is that traditional alphas, yes, are effective. They get things done. But it's kind of like in the vein of the ends justify the means, right? Whatever I have to do to get to the goal, if that means acting unethically, fine. If that means being just a terrible boss or colleague or person to be around, that's fine. And I think that people also tend to be really driven by their own personal success and are less focused on organizational success and the role of other team members. And so while they tend to be effective, they're not the kind of people that others really want to work with. And that's the problem. And it hits on this idea of engagement that we talked about, right? Because if you're working, 
working with a leader or even just a colleague like that, you, you're not going to feel um, like you want to be a part of that work or that you're deeply connected to them or what you're doing. You're kind of just doing the work because you have to or because you need the paycheck. And I think in contrast, new alpha leaders are also highly effective, but they're the kind of people who really work, and this kind of gets into your work, they want to find purpose and meaning in what they're doing and to really help those around them do that as well. And I think more broadly, they think about not just how do we get to that end goal, but, but how much the way that we do that matters, right? So we know now, because we have such good social science research in the last you know, 10, 20 years, that more than just being like nice to have, ethics actually matter, right? Organizations that behave ethically tend to have more innovation and more creativity. We know this ties into long-term you know, organizational um, sustainability and being able to adapt to the market. We know it means more cool and innovative products. So those things matter. Emotional intelligence, same thing. You can get pretty far without it, but you'll you'll tap out earlier on in your career if you don't develop those skills. So I think in the past we thought, oh, it's you know, it's nice if we have those leaders who are um, you know, inspiring and motivating to be around, but let's just focus on the bottom line. But actually we know now that you're not as likely to do well just as a business, right, in terms of profits and productivity if you have the more traditional alpha leaders in place. And as we move forward, we need to think about, okay, what does it mean to be a new alpha leader? How is that, that different? Um, and how can we train people around some of those qualities and competencies as well? So the new alpha book, as I took from it, is, is and I'm simplifying, has three core chunks, if you will. There's a, a, a focus mm-hmm. on personal excellence. There's a focus on personal leadership. And then a focus on team and organizational leadership. And I want to jump into, I want to jump into personal excellence for a minute. And there are uh, a, a few components of what leads to personal excellence, uh, demonstrating character and ethics, building positive and productive relationships. Something that you and I talked about before we started chatting uh, and recording was the prioritization around health and wellness and well-being mm-hmm. and really developing a mental a mindset for success. And the piece that in this personal excellence that there is a story I heard you tell uh, and it relates to David Brady and Professor David Brady. <laughs> and, okay. uh, and so I'm going to do my best not to blow the story because I want you to retell it. But this individual was kind of built up to be a pretty big McGillicuddy in your life prior to you meeting him. <laughs> and then when you met him, I, I think from that experience, I I made a connection and I might be wrong in this connection that so much of David's influence has been a big contributor to how you think about character and ethics as part of personal excellence. So I'm going to leave that as the the framework, and and I'm hoping you can tell a bit of the David Brady story. Yeah, so I'm, I'll I'll think about how to summarize this uh, as efficiently as possible. So David Brady was my dissertation chair in grad school at Stanford, and when I'd gone originally to visit Stanford to decide, you know, whether I was going to go there for grad school, I just heard so much about him at our admin weekend. Right, everyone was talking about him. You know, do you know David Brady? Are you scheduled to meet with him? And I was a little bit embarrassed because I was like, who is this David Brady? Like, should I be meeting with him? And and I just the entire weekend both you know, students who were admitted and current students and faculty were all talking about this David Brady character. And so, you know, sort of buzzkill, I I didn't meet him at Admit Weekend, but the name really stuck out in my mind. And I thought, okay, I need to think about who this guy is and sort of research him and find out more about why everyone loves him so much. So I decided 
elected to go to Stanford and I matriculated that fall. And it was my first week of classes, the first actually class of the year. And we get there and it was a course on American politics and it turned out there wasn't a professor to teach it. And so the Stanford political science department said, Hey, we're going to actually have you each. We're going to assign. there's 10 students. There's 10 weeks in the quarter. We're going to assign each of you to, to co-teach with one of the faculty, you know, one of the senior faculty in American politics, you know, one of the lessons each week. So sure enough, I get paired up with David Brady. And I was like, oh my God, I got that David Brady character. And it was weird because it was totally random that we got paired up. But then of course everyone's like, oh my God, you got Brady. And I was like, whoa, who is this? Um, so I sent him an email and I was just like, hey, very professional, spent a lot of time thinking how to wear this. You know, my name's Danielle Harlan. I want to introduce myself. You know, we got assigned to teach this class together. Let me know if you want to meet and, you know, think about how to do it and what our learning goals are and what kind of activities, right? Very detailed professional email. So I send it off and I immediately get a reply back, like, are you on campus? <laughs> and so I write back, yeah, you know, I'm over in blah, blah, blah building. And he said, can you come over to, you know, this building, this room? And I was like, oh, okay. So I get off my computer, I throw my laptop, all my books in my backpack, and I head over to his office. And I get there, and I was so nervous to be finally meeting this you know, character that everyone was talking about for months, that I just sort of nervously like get into this sort of launch into basically the exact thing I'd said in the email. Hey, I'm Danielle, we're assigned to teach this class. How do you want to do it? How do you want to organize it? And he listens, and he's sort of nodding as I'm standing there in his office. And so finally I get through my whole spiel. <laughs> he just goes, is it catered? <laughs> I was like, what? Is it catered? And I was like, um, no. And I, I will say, having gone to a public university for undergrad, I did have a moment where I was like, is it catered? <laughs> this is amazing. Private school is great. Um, and I was like, no, no, I think it's just a regular class, no food. And he goes, well, I think we should order the students lunch. I have some funds to do this. I think it's going to help people kind of like relax and just make it a, a nice, you know, sort of easygoing conversation, not too high stress. And he's like, you know, grad students also sometimes don't have a lot of money for food. And of course I was familiar with that scenario. You don't make a ton as a grad student. And it was so interesting. So we ended up buying the whole class lunch. And of course we did, you know, true to my original request, set some learning goals and have some activities. And I think it ended up being the best class of the quarter, largely not, not due to my influence. I wish I could take credit, but because I think he knew not only like, what are the goals here, right? Like we need to teach on this topic, but also how do we do it in a way that really brings people in, makes them feel comfortable, helps them connect, not just like to the academic subject that we're teaching, but as human beings. And food is a great way to do that. And I think he also showed a lot of empathy too. You know, not, not just what do people need academically, but what are the people who are going to be in the seminar maybe need to feel, you know, good and, and well-fed and, you know, intellectually ready to go. Hey, food might be helpful. So I just learned a ton from David Brady about, you know, what it means to not only achieve the goals that you know you have to on paper, but to really help bring people together and connect them and to use empathy as a way to get people in positions where they're really prepared for success. And I will say also just one last thing on David Brady. I think David Brady was not how I imagined him, right? Like he he's such a well-regarded academic. He's the kind of person he's on like NPR all the time. He travels all over the world to give talks on, you know, political science and politics. Um, and I, and he's, and to be honest, he's like an older white male. I just sort of have this image in my mind of who he'd be. And I love that when I met him, that image was completely blown. 
all these stereotypes I had of him just kind of fell apart. And I realized he doesn't feel the need to kind of conform to this mold, right, of what a senior faculty at Stanford should be. And he's even sometimes like a little quirky and a little weird. And people love that about him, you know, that he is unconventional. He doesn't necessarily fit into this cookie cutter image. So how much of that, um, uh, I'll say nonconformity to what the the generalized or generalization is of what a leader should look like, act like, uh, be like, how much of that nonconformity plays into the new alpha where, you know, really stepping into being the best of who each of us is as an individual, as a main ingredient in mm-hmm. what it takes to be a new alpha. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think there it is. It is true that there's a certain you know base set of qualities. I think you need to, we all need to develop to be effective leaders, right? And so those are you know we need to be able to set a compelling vision and you know work with our teams to do that and get people to buy in. And we need to influence and motivate people you know toward a goal. And any level of leader needs to do this, right? Whether you are leading an organization, whether you supervise people or don't. Um, you know, we need to embody those qualities. But I think how we do this is where the, we see the differences for people. So I think I learned a lot from David Brady in terms of, you know, figuring out that, oh, I don't have to fit this mold. I can figure out, you know, which aspects of my own personality, my unique sort of values and strengths and skills and the things that I'm interested in and passionate about, what aspects of those are going to make me the most influential and powerful. I mean, it's interesting. Sometimes when I tell people about David Brady, <laughs> poor guy, I talk about him all the time. First time I see him, I'm like, oh, buddy, I'm talking about you again. So shout out to David Brady. Hi there. Um, but I, what I learned from him is not how to be like him, right? So people were like, oh, I want to be like David Brady. I'm going to be quirky and weird and ask strange questions. And, you know, I think if that's authentic to you, then that can work. For me, I'm, we have very different personalities. And I think if I tried to be like David Brady, that would be strange. And I think you'd detect that, right? It would be like, Danielle, why are you acting so strange? That's not necessarily who you are. But I think there are other aspects of my personality. Um, For example, I'm someone who's very intellectually curious. And I think I bring that to my approach to leadership. I always ask questions, but but I also am empathetic. So I'll say, hey, I'm asking questions not to challenge you, but because I'm super interested in what you're saying and really want to engage and connect with it. So for me, those qualities, I think, make me distinctive, and I think they give me some influence and power. And I'll say one last thing on this, just being in Silicon Valley after talking today. So I'll have clients who come in for coaching, and they'll say, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, right, who's the COO of Facebook, who started Lean In, amazing, powerful, influential woman, not just here in Silicon Valley, but around the world. People say, I want to be like her. And my answer is always, you know, Sheryl is powerful powerful and influential, not because of exactly what she does. I mean, you can't copy those things exactly. She has that power and influence, and she is a new alpha, I think, because she's true to herself. Like, she knows herself well, and she uses her best qualities and really leverages them in a way that's going to allow her to make the biggest impact. And what we can learn from her is not, you know, that we should copy her exactly, but that we can look within ourselves and find the qualities that make us unique and distinctive and that are really going to give us an edge. It's a great point. It's a really great point. So in the work that, that we do at Y Scouts, and I would imagine in the work that you do as well, there's a tremendous amount of overlap in a particular, I'm sure mm-hmm. in many areas, but one in particular that I just want to touch on for a moment is that 
you know, when we go into an organization and begin to uncover what type of a new leader they're looking for, one of the areas mm-hmm. that we dig into is, well, what is the existing or prevailing leadership style or philosophy that exists within mm-hmm. the organization? And from time to time, uh, we run into uh, uh, you know very traditional alpha type leaders. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you can see it, you can feel it in the in the body language, uh, and just in the overall mm-hmm. culture of the organization that the employees, those that aren't the CEO or president, are just dying for a change of pace, for a different way of being led. How do you yeah. how do you best help? a leader who has achieved great levels of success doing it the traditional way, and especially folks that have been around the block once or twice who are at the, you know, perhaps uh, mid to later stages of their career. Can you, can, can you change them? Can you co- co- create a compelling enough platform that says, listen, if, if, if you don't start embracing these elements of what a new alpha looks like, your reign as being the greatest will slowly begin to to erode over time. Yeah, yeah. I think what I learned in terms of, so, so do I think it's possible to change people who are the more traditional alpha? Yeah, absolutely. I think any one of us can make the decision to, you know, change some aspects of our approach or our leadership style at any point in time. I think it is harder for people who've received a lot of validation from, you know, being more traditional alpha leaders, right? They've been rewarded for achieving the sort of bottom line goals and that's it. So I, I would say the first thing that I think is necessary for that change to occur is I think, and this comes from sort of my background in quality improvement and quality improvement coaching from the Carnegie Foundation. But there has to be some will there on their part. Do they actually want to change? Do they have some sense of how what they're doing isn't working as well as it it could if they change their approach? And I think if that will and desire is there, then yeah, change is possible. But if it's not, then I think that change is going to be very, very hard. And I think it's worth people who are working with that type of leader to think about that. Like, does that will exist? And and sometimes we can kind of help that will happen, right? Like we can compel people to realize actually maybe a different approach would work, but it's a lot easier if you're starting off and the person kind of has that natural desire to start with. And I think the second piece is when thinking about how to change behaviors is really thinking about how can I empathize with this person? So what does this person need to feel like they can make the changes that that I see that need to be made or that the organization is telling them need to be changed? And for some people, they're really compelled by data, right? Like here's some research and actually why emotional intelligence um, it, it produces like better outcomes in the long run. For other people, they have to see it in action, right? Like go watch this person and, and see the difference in terms of their efficacy. For other people, they have to try out the change. Well, let's try and make this one tweak and see actually if you behave this way in a meeting, do you get like closer to the result you want in a more efficient way? But I think there's lots of ways to sort of um, help help build that will. That starts with empathy on our part, our part as coaches or consultants, but also the team members who are surrounding that person. How much of um, of this ability to make these types of changes do you think is connected to, and the success of somebody being able to make the change is in part uh, connected to the short term mindset of the quarter to quarter result expectations that exist or even the annual expectations versus um, 
broadening perspective and taking more of a long-term approach? How much of, how much of connectivity is there? Oh, I think it's a great question, Brian. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, the way that, that boards and organizations sort of self-evaluate or evaluate leadership is, is based on the wrong time frame. And if you look at a lot of organizations, we look at quarterly returns, right? And um, bottom lines of revenues and profits in the short run. And I think that's dangerous because that, that basically creates an incentive system where people get rewarded for doing whatever it takes to be successful in the short run, even if we know in the long run that's actually not going to be sustainable. And so many times, so we have some organizations, right, like I can think back to like Enron, right, <laughs> where there was a lot of bad behavior going on, right, because it benefited people in the short run, but look what happened in the long run. But it doesn't even have to be necessarily unethical or illegal behavior, sometimes it just creates a situation where people are so stressed in the short run that they lose all sense of how to really be an inspiring and motivating leader and are yelling at people um, or sort of having temper tantrums in meetings. I mean, I've seen people in their 60s even behaving like this, and I think about, wow, this is amazing, because I feel like we covered this in my kindergarten class. (laughs) Well, this isn't an effective way, and I don't mean to be mean or condescending, but I think if you ask any person of you know, sort of reasonable intelligence who has some work experience, they'd say, no, of course, that's not the way you want to act. But by creating these sort of short time horizons, we also can create like stresses that really incentivize people to behave in the wrong ways, whether it's unethical or just, you know, abusive or hostile or whatever. And not only is, is that bad for the people that have to experience that, but it often, to your point, really can harm organizations in the long run. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think a lot of that probably stems from some symptoms of confirmation bias. If you are uh, a very successful leader and you've been leading companies large or small for a number of years or if not decades, and you've always been able to deliver the results uh, on average, you know, time and time again, and there's a way you've done it, you know, changing at the later stages of, of perhaps your career, it's, you know, I, I, I can at least understand why a leader who's been around the block once or twice would question, well, I, I'm not going to change because I always get things done, whether they like it or not. Yeah. People I'm leading. I don't yeah. care. I got to get the job done. And that's what matters most. It's all about, you know, that aim being squarely on achievement and ignoring fulfillment and impact, yeah. period. And it's so, it gets back to the earlier point about traditional offices are so much more focused on their own personal success, right? Because if those leaders just pause and thought about, okay, if, if I believe I'm the main driver here, right, and my like over aggressiveness or bending the rules or breaking the law, that's what's necessary to really push us forward. Okay, well, what happens when you step away, right? What happens when another CEO comes in or God forbid something happens where you're unable to do your duties? You haven't set up that organization to be successful beyond you. And to me, that's one of the most selfish things that leaders can do. Like if you really think that you are the driving force that's getting things done, then you're not an effective leader because really exceptional leaders set the organization up for success so much so that they can step out of their role, whether because they have to or or because they want to or whatever, and the organization will continue to be successful. Isn't it interesting too, just to think about how important the work you're doing needs to be brought to these boards, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, the boards are the ones oftentimes measuring and evaluating uh, the performance of the leadership team, and in particular, the CEO. And if the bottom line numbers are continually meeting 
or exceeding expectations, you know, it's easy to turn the other way and ignore mm-hmm. what might be some very detrimental behavior or actions that are going to harm the organization in the long term. I think this is exactly right. It's so interesting you bring that up. So I teach uh, a course at Stanford called The Exceptional Leader. I teach it in person and online. And one of the things in the last couple of years that I've really had to adjust there is I have so many now senior leaders of large organizations who are taking the class, particularly the online version, right? Because you can take it from anywhere in the world. And one of the things they always bring up is how do I use this with my board? So I've had to create like mini modules within the online course for those people who are senior leaders who are thinking about, okay, you know, I can do this with the people that I formally manage and supervise and I can set the tone for the organization, but how do I sort of make it move in the other direction towards the board? And I think it's, I think it's exactly the right question for them to be asking. And I do think the same principles and ideas are relevant, but it's worth thinking through, like, what are the differences when I'm managing a board or sort of managing up versus when I'm leading and coaching my team? So one of the, uh, one of the areas that I touched on very, very briefly as part of the personal excellence is, you know, the prioritization of health and wellness and and your overall well-being. And as a leader, you know, stress can oftentimes, if not always, be incredibly high demands and it can be incredibly lonely. So for you, what have you found to be some of your best ways to uh, you know, relieve that stress? What are some of the tactics and, and disciplines that you've really adopted and have become part of who you are and, and have contributed to your success and what you're up to? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, I think there are two pieces to this. One, what do I need to really sustain my sort of mental health and wellness and emotional well-being? Um, and for me, that's a lot of that has to do with getting enough sleep, you know, eating well, exercise. I know you totally believe these things as well. And then also really making sure I have high quality people in my life, people who both support and challenge me. Uh, I think the second piece is about how do I manage stress effectively? And there's some great research coming out. Um, Kelly McGonigal has an excellent TED talk on this, where we know actually that stress in of itself isn't necessarily bad how we choose to respond to it matters a lot so I think it's worth thinking through you know okay I have stress in my life that might be unavoidable and actually it could really push me to do like a great job but how can I manage it in a way that's going to be good for my health and for me there's a couple of things I do one a couple of them are easy one is really hard so exercising and running is huge for me. We sort of talked about this offline a little bit. If someone said, like, Danielle, you can't exercise for even a couple of days or a week, that would be terrible for my own effective stress management because that really, really helps me to sort of burn off anxiety and excess energy. Um, also, I found I'm someone that's pretty high energy throughout the day, but that also means sometimes that my mind is still racing at, you know, 11 p.m. at night. And so I I have to think about how can I sort of disconnect from that energy and actually just chill out a little bit. And I found that reading fiction is really helpful before bed, mm. not nonfiction because I get too, too engaged in it. Right. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is a great idea. I want to apply this. I want it's too much thinking, too much analytical brain. Yeah. Um, so I actually, right now I'm reading Harry Potter for the I don't know, fourth or fifth time, the entire series. <laughs> and part of it is I love the stories, but it, I get so deep in that world that it really does help me disconnect from sort of the day to day thinking And then the final piece, and this is the one that's hard for me, and I'd love your perspective on this, Brian, meditating. I think meditating is so key. I've personally seen the benefits of it, but as someone who is really high energy and constantly thinking, 
pausing and sort of turning that off and just being in the moment can be really difficult, but I think it's really powerful in those moments and I've been able to do it and certainly helps me find like a sense of balance and perspective in my life. Yeah. I wish I could offer uh, a very valuable perspective <laughs> on the meditation piece. You know, I've been threatening myself to myself that I'm going to start <laughs> And I find, and it's just excuses. It, it's just excuses that, I, and perhaps similar to you, that I'm the type of person where, and I've tried it a couple times, where what ends up happening is, as I'm focusing on the breath, that I start asking myself in my head, am I doing this right? Is this the right thing? Like, <laughs> is it right? And I'm way too focused on doing it right than I am on just starting the path, sticking with it and, and, and living into it being a part of, uh, of, you know, my daily routine. And so I've been I'm a horrible person for advice on that. So, um, you know, <laughs> that makes me feel so much better. <laughs> and I need it because, yeah, like you, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, my mind, it's awful. I mean, the hamster never gets off the wheel. Yeah. And it's yeah. so annoying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, I uh, will say, I've been, well, I've been working on it for, I think, like about eight years. And someone asked me, how long did it take you to really feel like you were getting benefits? <laughs> it took me about seven years. <laughs> I don't know what the first seven of the eight years were. And now, like, I, I do have moments where, like, I'm getting back into it now after kind of being off for a month or two. And I feel like I've sort of lost, like, everything. And I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think you just kind of have to let yourself be in the moment. And, and sometimes, like, you like feel like you're quote unquote doing it right. And sometimes you're not for me. The biggest issue is just like mind wandering though. Yeah. Not even am I doing this right, but Oh crap, I'm not meditating. Meditating. I'm just sitting here thinking. Yeah, no, I totally, <laughs> you know, it's, it's isn't isn't quite it. Meditation such an interesting thing. And, and uh, I don't know if this right, wrong, indifferent. It's just, it's, it's a personal feeling. So for me, there are a couple of activities that, I do completely disconnect from the hamster on the wheel. One of them is, is if I can break away mm -hmm. in the evening or on the weekends and go play. I love playing Texas Hold'em poker. I love the camaraderie of the table. Oh, yes. I love the strategy of the game. It's a, it's th it's thinking, but yeah. if you're going to do well or if I'm going to do well, I can't think about anything else. I can't get lost in, in yeah. you know, the monkey brain. The other thing for me that's mm -hmm. been so meditative is about 13 months ago, I just, I made the decision that I am going to learn how to be very, very proficient at playing guitar. And it that's has awesome. been the most rewarding 13 month journey with plenty of ups and downs. But when I sit down on a Saturday or a Sunday and the kids leave the house and my wife takes them out and they go do uh, you know, some errands or whatever it is. And if I can get an hour or two, like they'll come back, mm -hmm. I hear, hear the garage door open and it's as if they've mm -hmm. only been gone for two minutes. Yeah. It, the yeah, time just flow flies. Feeling. Yeah. It is truly flow. It truly is where I just lose track of everything. And it's just, it's for me, it's very meditative. Yeah. 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 I think it's useful to think too, like what, what are our goals for meditation? Sometimes it's you know, just kind of clear your mind and have a moment. But sometimes maybe, and that can be helpful, um, and there's, like, great data supporting, like, how that, you know, helps with a certain brain waves that we don't normally get. But also, I think there's this idea of, well, if I'm really just trying to actually, like, detach and kind of connect with, like, flow or something like that, then maybe there are other activities that aren't, you know, quote, unquote, traditional meditation, but they're going to allow me to experience that. And it's a really smart idea to kind of 
maybe look at more non-traditional routes to achieving that. Yeah, you know, it's, it has certainly been a, a great gift for me. Um, and so if, uh, if I can trick myself and say my form of meditation, uh, shows up in ways different than traditional of sitting down and being yeah. in a quiet place and it works, then, you know, I, I, who am I to say that, uh, I should try and conform to, to the more traditional way, which interestingly enough, kind exactly. of brings us right to the traditional versus the new alpha, you know, one of the things, <laughs> right. a beautiful, uh, a beautiful, uh, kind of loop there. One of the things that uh, I think is so amazing about the book is the sheer volume of assessments and guides and pres- and the prescriptive nature of here are a number of different aids and tools you as an individual can use and participate in to get you thinking along the right paths. And at the end of each section, there's an abundance of these. It's not just one. It's like there are dozens of them. And, you know, I think there are so many people out there that do want, you know, a, a bit of a prescriptive guide. My, my question around this is, as you were thinking about writing the book and in the process of writing the book, did you struggle at all with wanting it to be more of an anecdotal based book versus one of prescription? Yeah, I will. You know, I think it's interesting. So this is funny. Actually, I was giving a book talk last night and there was a woman who bought the book right before the talk and she sat down, she's on the front row, she starts reading it and she looked up at me right before the talk started. She goes, damn, this is really good. (laughs) And I think it's because she opened it and saw all of those. I mean, it is, I think people expect to buy a leadership book, right? And it's a lot of sort of chapter on how to do this or what the theory says about that. And I often gain a lot from those and I love those books, but I get to the end and I'm like, Okay, I have like a lot of knowledge of leadership now, but did that experience actually increase my know-how, right? Am I actually a better leader? So when I sat down to write the new alpha book, I thought about how can I give people not just the knowledge of what, you know, makes an effective leader and even an exceptional new alpha leader, but then how do I build that know-how? How do I build skill building into a reading experience? And so I designed the book to give like a little bit of the theory for people like me who kind of wonder understand where are these ideas coming from you know where did the author get these like I didn't just pull them out of nowhere and I tried to give some good anecdotes and a few sort of personal examples and examples of people I've worked with but particularly across like a variety of fields and ages and roles and types of careers so there was some diversity in that but then really like the the thrust of the book is on um, you know skill building exercises sort of assessing where you are doing sort of trying to practices, reflecting on those and tracking progress over time. So I've had a few of my leadership and executive coaching friends actually use the book with their clients. And they're like, wow, we can't believe you're kind of giving away all these secrets, right? Because many people charge hundreds or thousands of dollars an hour for that kind of thing. And I think for me, that's not what I'm about. Like I, I believe so deeply that effective leadership is a real mechanism for the kind of social change that I want to see in the world. And if I can give people access to that for, you know, 26 bucks instead of hundreds or thousands of dollars, then that gives me like such a sense of meaning and purpose. And I'm happy to give away stuff for free. And people will email me and say like, you know, can I use your book with, with my team? Is that like, okay, if I take these ideas and I'm like, yes, like it's not, (laughs) they're not even like, I wouldn't even say like, I own those ideas. Like I learned those from working with amazing leaders and just really great people. And then I found along the way, wow, like there's some, 
there's some really great empirical data that actually supports the things they're doing. So let me give people that too. Um, but I'm happy to give it away for free. I'm happy for people to sort of co-opt it and make it their own or adapt it. I think whatever we can do to really develop um, the kind of leaders that we need in the modern world, I'm happy to support that. God, you know, so I'm, I'm a, I am a huge music fan. And in particular, it's funny, you, you talk about, uh, you know, where you grew up and uh, even though some of the, the, the music that was coming out of the Bay Area – uh, in the 60s and perhaps early 70s was not necessarily smack dab in the middle of your childhood. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the point that I want to draw here, something that I just find interesting is you said you're just you want to give it away because the more you give it away, the more people are going to use it, the bigger the impact it's going to have. And by the way, exactly. the more people that do use it, you're going to get feedback from people as to what are the things that are working really, really well. And likely over time, you're yeah, also- yeah back from people that are going to say, Hey, Danielle, have you thought of this? Cause this worked really well when we combined mm-hmm. this with this and you're like, it's this never ending experiment. And the, the, exactly. the, the connection to music for me that just comes up and boy, this is just going to be an odd connection, but it makes sense in my head is that one of the most unbelievable things I think uh, the Grateful Dead as a band did that went completely against the grain of the entire music business was allowed their audience to record their live concerts and then trade them and give them away. And what ended up happening, you look now, and I'm a huge fan of the music and attended a number of their uh, shows over my time. And Mm -hmm. here I am at the ripe old age of 44. The band hasn't played with its original lineup since 1995, yet their their relevance, and maybe it's my own echo chamber, but their culture, their relevance, their popularity amongst the people who saw them and enjoyed them back then is still as strong as it ever was. And as a result of some of the reincarnations of the remaining members of the band who are still playing today, they're picking up new fans along the way and it's still growing. And I think a lot of that has to do with the spirit of give it away and people will do amazing things with, and it will work more to your advantage than you missing a few dollars along the way and making money. Exactly. No, I completely agree. It's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of them as an example, but growing up in Big Sur, of course, I'm familiar with them. And yeah, I think you perfectly described sort of what they did and how that was different, but why it was really effective. People ask me all the time, like I work with startup organizations and there's this question of, you know, how much should I give away for free? And I think, I mean, certainly you have to figure out a business model so that you can make a living, but I really think it's worth thinking about what aspects of the work do I do that I can give away? Um, like the book isn't, isn't free, but it's certainly a reduced cost for anyone who's interested in coaching, but maybe doesn't have like the time or resources. The book is designed to be that in a really resource and, and time efficient way because it's so self-paced and, and so much less expensive than professional coaching. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of really good examples of people who do that well. So for people who are interested, yeah, it's worth looking at the Grateful Dead. Um, there's also people, Amanda Palmer, who's an artist who's married to the, the writer Neil Gaiman, I think has some interesting models too on sort of crowdsourcing, right? And how you can put an idea out in the world and give away some free stuff and then get the people who support you to really then pay for you on your own to create quality content as well. Yep. No doubt. And there's no. a lot of, well, I think we're alive in a time where there's a lot more models for that, those kinds of things than there used to be. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of it just revolves around there. There, you know, we came from a time and a place 
that wasn't wrong. It was what it was. It is just different than than it is today. There was literally one way to advance through society and through your career. Yeah. And and wow, talk about a shattering of this received wisdom that's been handed down. And people are just figuring out whatever is going to work best for them. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's not surprising that our models of leadership of once what of one I'm tw- uh, jumping over my words of what once got us to the results that we were used to just doesn't work as well. And frankly, there's a good chance it's not going to work at all as the future continues to unfold. So I think it's I think it's yeah, amazing think it's what fun. you're up to. Oh, okay. No, no, not at all. Thank you. Well, I was going to say, I think it hits so much on your own story, right? Of being sold this sort of like myth of what it means to be successful, right? Like go to college, get a degree, work a job. So eventually you can retire and be happy. And it's like, I love, so I'm 35 right now, sort of on the border of Gen X and Gen Y. And I love what I feel like my Gen Y counterparts have done, which is to say like, actually, maybe this isn't what we want. And maybe it's okay to say that. And maybe it's okay even to demand more. And I think millennials get a lot of flack in particular, right, for being so demanding and wanting more. But I was talking to a colleague of mine. He's like, what, what do you think about this, Daniel, sort of having one foot in each generation? And I was like, you know what? Maybe they just have courage, right? Maybe they just totally. have the courage to say, like, this is a myth. Like, we don't want this. And we're going to ask for more. And if you don't like it, we'll find something else. And I think one thing that generation has done really well, too, is to think about like the, the role of material possessions, right? So I feel like people my age and older, like, you know, we want to own a home. We want to have like the exact right, you know, big flat screen TV and the exact right car. And I love the millennials. Like, oh, I don't think we need that. Maybe I'll live in like a tiny house or maybe I'll have like 10 roommates and maybe I'll do work that I love. And I think it's just a whole different way of thinking about money and materialism and what it means to live, not just to have a successful career, but to live a really successful life. And I love it. And learning a ton from them. Yeah, no, I, I'm so in your camp on this and, you know, the more diversity and the more, uh, you know, diverse, that's the best word I can come up with, uh, of the way people are choosing to live and what they value, the more, the better. I think it's fantastic. Um, Yep. I, there's, I, I have a feeling we could, uh, we could go <laughs> for all day, no question about it. I want, <laughs> I want to wrap with, um, and this, I, I hope this is, uh, I hope this will be a fun uh, wrap up uh, topic that I don't think will take too long. Um, I stumbled upon, I think it was the. Uh, a biz journal article from last year. You were selected as one of the Silicon Valley forty under forty, and in it. Um, if you expanded the article, it talked about uh, a question I think you were interviewed was, do you have any secret talents? And I laughed my ass off. One of them was that you're really good with animals and you taught your cat not only how to <laughs> fetch, but how to actually use the toilet. So I, I, how, how did you figure that out? I think it really goes back to just believing in the potential of those around you. I mean, it sounds so trite and silly. But I read about it and I was like, okay, and no cats are capable of doing this. And the short story is you can buy a kid to sort of help them learn to do it. But I think also sometimes, I mean, it gets to this idea of what it means to really like connect with other, I think, human beings and maybe creatures around us. And I think sometimes we don't realize like how smart and really intuitive 
because animals are. And I think if you kind of make that connection, I always say for people who want to increase emotional intelligence, like get a pet. I really mean it. Or, or maybe have a baby. This is probably more familiar with people who've done that, <laughs> where you can't actually communicate in words, right? Like a baby's crying. Like, what do they need? I can't ask them. But obviously, they're trying to communicate something. And so I think going through that experience with my poor cats, who are in, insanely weird and quirky now. But I think that really helped me to think about how do I communicate without words with this creature that's totally different than me. And it also made me really like respect the level of, I think, like intuition and, and connection that animals are capable of. And maybe I was just sort of a little bit more narrow minded in my thinking before going through that experience. So That's... oddly I've learned a lot from cats, cats, cats and Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you need weird, to, but true fact. Yeah. When you, uh, when you write new alpha part two, it needs to be some sort of a <laughs> subtitle of it's a feline Harry Potter sort of thing or something like that. <laughs> I will say, I was, I was teaching a class recently. At the end of the class, the students bought me a cat toy. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And they were like, you talk a lot about cats, but it's really helpful. And I was like, that's so bizarre. That's but I'm glad awesome. it's working. That's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, Danielle, what a pleasure. It's just a, a great conversation. I want to make mention again that for those of you out there that want to dig more into Danielle's book, The New Alpha, Join the Rising Movement of Influencers and Changemakers Who Are Redefining Leadership. Uh, it is available anywhere and everywhere books are sold. Probably the quickest uh, path would be through Amazon or your local bookstore. And then mm -hmm. uh, to learn more uh, about Danielle, you can visit the website, uh, the Center for Advancing Leadership and Human Potential. And I believe that URL is at www.leadershipandhumanpotential.com. You got it. All right. And it's, uh, yep, uh, the, yes, leadershipandhumanpotential.com. Okay, perfect. Um, well, Danielle, that was great. What a, what a great conversation. I, uh, <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time. This was fun. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. It was a lot of fun, Brian. Thank oh, you guys for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wish you a great 2017. Keep up the great work. And uh, I hope our paths cross again. Yeah. Thanks and happy new year. Yeah. You too. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Danielle. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. Lastly, if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening. Mm -hmm.